and welcome back to the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello, folks. Peter McKenzie. Hi, everyone. And Mark Stockley. Hello. Hello. Now, I feel like we can't start the podcast without talking about coronavirus. We should send lots of best wishes and love to those affected directly, those in self-isolation, those practicing social distancing. However it's affecting you, we hope you're doing okay. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, for one, am slightly overloaded with coronavirus news. And so I'm actively seeking out non-COVID-19 content. So I thought we could start with some remote working tips. Um, and because obviously a lot of people are going to be remote working um, in case they're helpful. And then shall we make it a bit of a coronavirus free zone so that people can uh, get away from yes. it? Yes, please. Sounds good to me. Cool. All right. So as usual, we pick the top three stories from the week to discuss on the podcast. So coming up on today's show, Duck's going to be giving some tips on how to enable your staff to work remotely. Peter's going to be telling us about a malware-free ransomware attack. Hmm. And Mark's going to be talking about Earn It, the latest in the encryption backdoor saga. Before all that, as I have now started to do, here's a quick roundup of a few other stories from the last week or so. A critical Windows 10 SMB vulnerability has been patched just two days after Redmond's monthly patch Tuesday. CVE 2020-0796 is a wormable remote code execution flaw nicknamed SMB Ghost. Brings Ooh. back memories of WannaCry. Yeah. You sounded <laughs> quite happy about noise? that. <laughs> it's a ghost noise. Oh, does anyone remember Happiness? WannaCry? <laughs> no, actually, do you know, I was on maternity leave, so I actually don't really remember much of WannaCry. <laughs> I I very much remember, yeah. Busy times. Yeah. Yes, I can imagine. Not good. But it's unlikely the floor, the SMB ghost floor, is being exploited in real world attacks yet. But that could change at yet. any time. Yeah. Yet. So the moral is make sure you have your patches. Yep, absolutely. Does anyone, that, does anybody it? know what the. Because this is SMB version 3, this affects. Yeah. And WannaCry was SMB version one, which mm-hmm. was sort of long deprecated version. Of the no, protocol. I think that's, a, that's the that got a few people feared here. Is I think this is a Windows ten Server twenty sixteen, so it's late late era stuff. Yes. that needs the patch. It's Unfortunately, those are the systems yeah. that that get their patches more easily if you want them to. So it should be easier not to be two months behind, like a lot of people were with WannaCry. Still are. That's generous. <laughs> Two months behind. Yeah, I yeah. I was just <laughs> mm, maybe years. Another database has been left floating unsecured on AWS, free for anyone to find using a search engine. This Surely one was not. a big. I know, right? It's a big, well, a reasonably big one. Eight million records, although not eight million users, collected via marketplace and payment system APIs that belong to ready Amazon, eBay, Shopify, PayPal, and Stripe. No, okay. more included- apparently. Yeah. Maybe. Who knows? We're not The data sure. included names, shipping and email addresses, phone numbers, which items were bought, what they paid, order IDs, linked Stripe and Shopify invoices, and partially redacted credit cards. So it's quite a quite a big hit. I was thinking when you were saying that, what combination of numbers and vendors would actually shock me at this point? No, mm. and, yeah. And I can't think of one. I think no. after Yahoo three billion records. There's, there's, there's nothing. nothing I was thinking. Sacred. I was thinking. Just how many times does your data get included in a breach before you stop caring about the next breach? I don't think. I think I'm just expecting everything to have been breached. Hmm. Yeah. When have I been pwned? Went 
in its breach count, larger than the number of people on the planet. Mm. I, I was inclined to go, oh, let, why should I bother? But uh, it is a useful reminder. And it is annoying that we're saying 8 million, like, oh, that's nothing. Because yeah. it all started at 100 million with Adobe all those years ago. And, mm. you know, that became the new benchmark. But it isn't good enough because this is, this is what was it, a tax company doing taxes for a bunch of third parties lost this data. So it could be gold dust to fishes, that's for sure. Yeah. What you bought, when you bought it, you know, it, it gives them a good pretext to call you up. Yeah. Okay. Slack has fixed a bug that could have allowed attackers to hijack users' accounts by tampering with their HTTP sessions. The flaw could have let the criminals steal users' cookies, giving them full account access using a sneaky trick called HTTP smuggling. The researcher who found the bug said they could have automated those attacks at scale. Slack fixed the bug within 24 hours of it being reported and gave the researcher a $6,500 bounty. So that's good. Huzzah for responsible disclosure. Exactly. That's how it's supposed to work, right? Yep. You tell them, they fix it, they pay you some money, and we're all better off. Exactly. Work. Right, now on to the uh, main stories of the day. So, Duck, it's fair to say a lot of people are going to be suddenly working from home at the moment. For those IT people trying to implement safe working, what's your advice? Yes, that's a difficult one to do without mentioning you-know-what. So let's assume that more people are working at home than ever for you-know-what reasons, but most companies have had people working at home for ages, and because it, but because it wasn't a significant proportion of workers, they may have kind of not quite done things properly, and now they're ramping it up. It's all getting quite hard. So a lot of, a, a lot of stuff you'll hear about this starts with the technology. You know, oh, you must get a VPN, and you must do this, and you must implement this, and you must buy that product, and lots of companies are piling in saying, oh, buy a product, we can do X, Y, and Z. So I just want to start by taking a step sort of backing up and saying, really, this is all about the people. It's mm-hmm. the fact that people who used to go into the office and when they had a problem with IT, they drop off the laptop and come back an hour later. They can't do that anymore. So start by thinking about the people. So you'll have an IT team on one side who are now dealing with people that they can't go and help directly if they really need to and vice versa. So uh, my advice, four simple words, meet in the middle In other words, if you're on the IT team, then there are going to be users who feel the need to ask you questions that in the office, you just have said, I don't have time to answer that, drop off the laptop. Now you'll have to deal with it. So if you're on an IT team, try and take the approach that says, you know what, even if somebody's asking me the 17th question, the same question for the 17th time, and I think they should know the answer, try to keep in your mind the motto that there's no such thing as a stupid question, only a stupid answer. So, you know, uh, cut cut your users some slack. And if you're a user and the IT team are suddenly saying to you, even though you've worked at home before a bit, now you're doing it all the time, we require you to change your behavior a bit. For example, if they say you are going to have to start using two-factor authentication, even though we know you hate it because it takes extra time, take one for the team. In other words, think of everybody else, not just yourself, because I think that's that's the biggest stumbling block. Everyone wants it to work immediately and it's easy to cut corners. And even worse, if you're a user and IT isn't quite responding quite fast enough, it's easy to go, you know what? I'll make up my own rules. I'll do it my own way. I'll go and put $9 on my credit card to build a Trello board or whatever it is for myself. Don't do that. Try and have a little bit of patience. 
and and think of the other people around. There are lots of people in the same boat. So technology is a key to solving the problem, but I think it's the people more than anything that can make it work because you can have the best technology in the world, but if you've got IT team and users fighting each other, it ain't never going to work. I guess there's the – do you think it's a risk that – with people using, say, if people aren't used to using their work laptops at home and suddenly they are, is there a risk in them going to sites that aren't necessarily work-related and increasing the risk there? <laughs> Not those kind of sites, Mark. Get your mind out of the gutter. You, you, I, no, you say, is there a risk? Well, you, I, I guess the the issue is that for most, for many people, if you've suddenly taken your work laptop home and you haven't been doing that before because you've done a little bit of work on your own laptop, then I think the biggest risk that you could put the company and yourself at is to start treating your work laptop like your home laptop, not in where you visit, but in what you do with it. So try and sit on your hands when you think, you know what, I could just give my work iPhone to my kids for a bit to play with just to keep them quiet because all going pear-shaped around me. Try not to do that You know, if, if you have the opportunity to keep your uh, home and your work life separate. I think the biggest difficulty, however, is kind of the other way around, where someone didn't didn't or doesn't have a work laptop, or they haven't been able to take their stuff with them from the office, because maybe they haven't been able to get back in there. And so what a lot of companies are doing is saying, look, just go and buy a laptop of your own, go to a shop if you're allowed to, or go online, order one, and when it arrives, we'll help you set it up. In the old days, IT would set it up for you physically. So I think what IT need to do is, is, and I will get a little sort of product technological here, look for some system that has what's called a self-service portal, SSP, that if somebody comes along with their own device, in other words, it's not a work laptop, maybe it used to be a home laptop, make it really easy for them to get started, a fresh start with a good install of the operating system, encryption set up properly, protections such as antivirus set up the way you want to make it really easy so the user can actually do that for themselves. And then when they start talking, you're okay, now how do I get all the apps working? You're actually starting off from a place that's secure before you start. So I think, to be honest, that's probably a bigger risk than somebody surfing weird stuff at home, because to be fair, they could probably have done that at work in many places. Actually, talking of uh, using your work devices for home, a company I worked at, they uh, suddenly tweeted out something really weird. It was just a load of letters and numbers and people were sending around messages going, have they been, have we been hacked quick? You know, what's going on? And it turned out that the uh, PR manager had just lent his phone to his three-year-old child. We should probably brace ourselves for a whole rash of things like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, my, yeah. my children are, are, are trying to be very, very quiet in the house where I'm recording this at the moment. Oh. Mine are not. They are fit to burst. (laughs) So so anything can happen. Yeah. So less is more. And if in doubt, don't give it out. And that includes don't lend your work stuff to your kids. And if you've had to repurpose home devices for work, try and keep them for that purpose. If you do keep a little bit of separation, it does make it less likely that you will make a mistake. Mm. I guess there also home devices might be repurposed for kids to be at the moment to be kids to be doing their schoolwork on as yes. well. Yeah, that, that's a that's a thorny problem, isn't it? So I guess mm. you know, companies then can't expect people to 
use their one and only laptop at home if they're going to need it for their kids. Because I know in the UK, this is already, there's already quite a lot of angst about this. You know, are we going to have education separated into the sort of the haves and the have nots? Because mm. what if you don't have a laptop at home? Well, you, oh, I'll go to the library. Well, you're not allowed to. So, yeah, yeah I think work, uh, you know, for, for work to say, look, just use your laptop at home for work. That, as you say, that may not be possible. So actually letting somebody order something in, even if it's a budget laptop, and then treating that as your work laptop, you do need a good way that you can take a laptop that just came off the shelf where it might have been sitting unpatched for six months, nine months, and bring it up to a state where you're actually happy for the person to start working on it. Do you think with kids using their parents' laptops for schoolwork that IT departments need to brace themselves for a new kind of call? Like, (laughs) why is the homepage of our website... (laughs) <laughs> suddenly changed to have Comic Sans. <laughs> or calls like, help, I'm in a test. I need to know how to integrate E to the minus three pi. Or something like that. I'm in Minecraft. <laughs> Actually, that was a rather silly problem because um, that's integrating a constant, which is rather trivial. But you get my drift. Yeah, I think it's more likely to be Minecraft, isn't it? So IT should direct those calls to you. (laughs) Doc can help. I don't know, they might get get a lot of social media angst as well. I'll do that. I guess you just have to cross that bridge when you come to it and, you know, maybe recognise that people will make honest mistakes and just be a little bit calm with one another. And many of these people are also going to be in quite stressful situations with kids at home and, I don't know, running low on toilet roll. Um, so you you definitely have to give people some more slack at this point. Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to run low on toilet roll. Everyone's stocked <laughs> up on it. <laughs> right. Thanks, Doug. Peter, you're going to talk to us about what you're calling a malware-free ransomware attack. Yeah. So What's going on there? Um, let's, well, start with a question. Well, how do you know if you are a ransomware victim? Ooh. Flaming skulls on yeah. your wallpaper. I imagine black with red writing or green writing. And yeah, yeah, lots of red or green, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's the traditional sort of hacker theme, isn't it? Um, and yeah, well, and maybe- something about how sorry they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, not sorry. Well, most people, um, they realise either there's a flaming skull on the desktop, but um, most people realise when they're trying to open a document, it no longer opens, you know, clicking on a shortcut and it doesn't work. And they uh, speak to IT and they realise it's uh, it's not just one file. Uh, or they find a ransom note on the desktop, which is the you know thing saying they're sorry, now give us some money, all that kind mm. of stuff. Um, but... That's typical for what um, you'd call file encrypting ransomware. So the type of things that you um, your your C drive is sort of left intact, other than specific file types. On, but then there is the other type of ransomware, or one of the other types, um, which you sort of cast as a disk wiping or disk encrypting ransomware, where um, you've got families like um, uh, Mamba and GoldenEye that have uh, been around for a while, but where they actually encrypt the whole disk volume. And often 
that means obviously there's no place for a ransom note on the desktop because you don't have a desktop anymore. So it's normally on a, a boot up message at the you know when you're starting up your machine. Into the says, monitor um, on a post-it. Yeah, exactly. You've got like a, a black That's screen with just a little message. So in the last few weeks, we've seen um, only a handful, but um, it's coming quite regularly um, of what we're sort of calling as a, a malware-free ransomware attack in the sense that they didn't use any malicious tools, any what you'd class as malware. It was all done through basically legitimate applications or what you might call as living off the land. So we know the attackers, I mean, it's a big reveal here. You may not realize this, but they did get in through RDP. I know. Surely not, Peter. If anybody uh, wants to know more about how they do that, (laughs) um, there's some some great research available on... Uh, I think you can get it from sophos.com slash RDP. My goodness. Just didn't know that, Mark. And, um, yeah, so they go in and they brute forced um, an admin account. So arguably they are using malware to do the brute force attack, but that's all back on, on their machine or wherever they're launching it from. The actual victim's machine, all they see is a load of failed login attempts and then eventually a successful login attempt. Yeah, so they get in and then, of course, with RDP, you've got full control of the mouse and screen, so, you know, and you're an admin. So you've already, you know, pretty much won uh, in the sense that you've now got access to someone else's network. You've got admin rights, which means you can run applications, you can do what you want. You could format the C drive if you wanted. Um, but what they were doing was moving from the machines they got into, which were often a server, so already a good target, um, but also from there then remoting into other servers on the network. And then they were just running legitimate disk encrypting software. So we've seen them use two different ones so far, one called Discryptor and another one called BestCrypt. And it's you can download them, you can put them onto a machine it's got a nice friendly ui that you can uh, you know choose the different options you want to run and you choose which disks you want to encrypt you set a password and you encrypt them oh, this, now, this, is, this is legit software yep it's legit yeah it's perfectly wow. i think i think they're both free as well so that's why you know it's it's not gonna necessarily get detected by a security product because it is you know, it's like running PowerShell or Word or, you know, these are legitimate applications that have genuine uses and people want to be able to use them. That's living off the land in essence. Um, and yeah, and so what they're doing is um, if you've got a server that's got multiple disks, so, you know, you've got a, a D drive for your backups or, or whatever, um, they're choosing to encrypt those disks. Um, and then what they do is they just leave a ransom note on the desktop of the of the C drive, um, or the, the user's C drive. Um, but we know in one attack, they actually chose to encrypt all the disks, including the C drive. And instead of um, putting like a boot startup message for the ransom note, what they actually did was before they launched the attack, they printed out the ransom note to all of the printers on the Oof. victim's network, mm. which is... With flaming like, skulls. 
Yeah, no, 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 it was just a, a text. That's like from a film <laughs> or TV like, show. Or from the, the 80s or, you know, this is yeah. like original hacking. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, in so, fact, that's exactly what the, the original 1989 AIDS information ransomware Trojan did yeah. when it would boot up just to make sure so you didn't have to write down this long thing and address off your screen. Um if you had a printer attached, you would print it out for you so you could actually put it in the envelope and mail it off. Quite handy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they printed it all out and then encrypted all the disks and um, asked for a 10-Bitcoin a um, uh, payment, which is, well, at the time, it was about $50,000. So obviously, Bitcoin's fairly uh, fluid. Yeah, it's about 45000 now. Anyway, fine. Um, they're relatively amateur attacks, these, to be honest. You know, you're using an automated tool to do the RDP brute force. Uh, well, we assume they are. It would be very manual if they weren't doing an automated version. Um, so you're basically just waiting for the result to come back to say, here's a successful login. And then it is literally... Isn't that as easy as typing into Shodan, find me servers with a password on this list? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it is. And there are tools like, um, so one of the ones we know is used quite a lot. It's called NL Brute. Um, and it's a simple brute forcing tool where you provide it um, three text files, one with a list of IP addresses, one with a list of usernames, one with a list of passwords. And you hit go basically and uh, it will then let you know once it's got in um and presumably if you put password it'll try password 01 and password 99 and the obvious well no it, it's literally two. it's literally just working down the list you have provided but you can go and get lists of common passwords and common usernames very easily off the internet um so i've got a couple of so there's been a we don't know if it's one person, one group, or multiple groups that are suddenly doing this, um, but we've seen two different ransom notes so far. So I'm going to read them to you. Um, so the first one, it says, um, your boss should, and actually, I should say, I will read it word for word. The English isn't great on either of them, but I'll read it word for word. Um, your boss will should- you speak know- loudly when they're using capitals? <laughs> <laughs> Just shout them. Uh, yeah. No, there's no, no capitals other than the Bitcoin address, but um, yeah. Okay, so. Common <laughs> um, um, collected crooks. What a pity. <laughs> well, it's payday for them. They're happy. But uh, anyway, so first one was, your boss should know that we are a professional hacking team. We have a backdoor to your system. We have many ways to attack again or destroy all hosts, files, data. We should find a way to solve the problem perfectly. We can get the money you can recover the data and you will not be attacked again. We will tell you where the vulnerability are. Um, so, yeah, saying professional hacking team, multiple backdoors, we can destroy you, but if you pay us... The RDP was the front door is kind of what they're implying, isn't it? And, and well, the, so that was the easy way. They've got yet more ways even beyond that is they're what not, they're implying. Well, they're, yeah, they're implying they've got me, we have many ways to attack again. They say um, I don't. They don't allude to RDP at all. I think most um, victims that did pay thinking, oh, great, we're going to find what this new zero day vulnerability is they exploited, and go, oh, RDP. <laughs> <laughs> quite zero password. Yeah. Like, yeah. Can, can we just say if you're if you're somebody who uses ransomware and holds people to ransom can you just drop it with the fake apologies and the congeniality yeah. and the kind of we're sorry 
we've encrypted your system, but we won't do it again. And we can find a solution, which is going to be great for all of us. And it's not you, it's me. And all this is just like, yeah. we've encrypted your hospital. We don't care about the people in it. We just want money. Uh, right. So the other one says, um, <laughs> you called this one quite correctly, Mark. Hello. I am sorry. <laughs> no, you're not. I am sorry. You're not that though, we... are you? <laughs> well, I am, but it wasn't my fault. Yeah, everyone um, else is sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, hello, I am sorry that we encrypted the hard drive of your company's servers. You need to pay 10 book bitcoins to our Bitcoin wallet address. And then they list it. Uh, we confirm... We confirm that payment is successful, if it is successful. Uh, we will tell you the decrypt password. Um, and then because this is a legitimate application, they then give the path to that application on your machine because they've left it there for you. So decrypt software in C colon backslash crypt slash bcfmgr.exe. Um, select the volume and click decrypt volume. Enter the password to decrypt. If there is only a C drive, we will choose to encrypt with BitLocker. So they're actually not even using you know, some free software they've downloaded. They're actually just using Windows BitLocker if all you've got is a C drive. Um, so again, you know, not much is going to pick that up. Uh, then they say, if you have reliable Bitcoin merchants... Um, you can contact them. I understand our targets. We man, we are manually hacking your network, not an automated virus. Don't lie to us. Don't make a story. I hope we have sincere communication. Is that like don't call the police? I, yeah, I don't. Don't I hope, do anything. I don't think. Don't, don't tweet make this, a, dude. Don't, don't make yeah. a podcast of this. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, no, I assume yeah. it, you know because they say don't lie to us, don't make a story. I think it's like just don't. We don't care. Pay us the money. Basically. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so they started all apologetically, and then they quickly got into sort of Mark's threats. tone of voice, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you need to pay. Yeah. Send the money. When we got the money, we'll send the key. Thank you. End of story. Yeah. And is that is that also fifty grand ish? Ten bitcoins. That was that was the ten bitcoin one. The first one right. uh, they didn't list a price. Yeah. Oh, you had uh, to negotiate, did you? So I got a yeah, question for you, Peter. So, do you think that there's anything in it in the long term for crooks to actually use ransomware at all? If they're not going to use, if if they're sending out malware and emails, you know, you you can imagine that there's a, there's a type of uh, ransomware that that would be useful to crooks, but if if more and more of them are doing this kind of living off the land, breaking in through RDP and uh, hacking more than anything else, uh, I, I presume the reason that they're doing this is there's an overhead to creating malware, uh, and also that there's you know uh, it, malware is uh, easier to spot. So what what uh, do you think ransomware is on the way out as a as a bit of software or oh, what, what do you reckon what, what's this pointing to i'm definitely not going to say ransomware is on its way out unfortunately um i, I think that it, that whatever techniques they use i mean the techniques have changed over the the months and the years the um the underlying question is what is the return on your investment you know yeah. how easy and reliable can reliably can you make money from this um this method here i mean so the bitcoin address they listed in the ransom note we saw um we believe it's been used multiple times um but there is 
a payment in there of 10 bitcoins. So someone has paid. So considering that you've used an automated tool that may have been running for hours or days, and eventually it says, you can now log into this machine. You've then probably spent a couple of hours, maybe, encrypting a few hard drives, and you got paid $50,000 for that. I mean, that's that's quite a return on investment, really. I mean, I don't get paid $50,000 for a couple of hours' work, that's for sure. <laughs> You're um, in the wrong job, Peter. Yeah. I know, I should become a podcast producer or something, shouldn't I? But, uh. Yeah, <laughs> that's what Alice says. But yeah, so it's, you know, it, this attack method feels, as I said, it's a little bit amateur, it's a bit sloppy. Um, it didn't work very well in some of the cases. I mean, so we, we've stopped. Um, we have protection that can stop disk encrypting ransomware, so um, we stopped many of them. Um, some of the software they were using just doesn't work with the type of volumes they were trying to encrypt. So it was very, you know, trial and error. But if they work a re- work out a reliable way to do this on uh, mass, you know, to you know, large amount of servers for a, a victim's network, um, then why wouldn't they continue doing it? Basically. Mm. So, what can people do to protect themselves? Uh, well, mm. I believe we've got some good research on RDP. <laughs> so, yeah. Where, where, where do you know RDP? people find that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, it doesn't exist. Sorry. They'll just have to figure it out. Sophos.com slash RDP. So, yeah, don't expose RDP to the internet. If you do, um, make sure that you've got things like VPNs in the way and strong passwords and all of those kind of things. Um, also, you know, restrict the access of your admins, you know, see which accounts, you know, do an audit basically in your Active Directory, work out how many admins you've actually got. Do you still need them? What access do they have? Do they need that access? It's time consuming. It has to be done on a, you know, at least semi-regular basis. But these are the mistakes that attackers love to use. Um, And then, of course, if someone does get in, ultimately they are going to win unless they either get bored, which is rare, or someone or something intervenes to kick them off the network. And Mm. when they're not using any malware and not really doing anything that would flag any sort of security product, then it's more about looking for suspicious um, behavior. You know, why is this admin account logging into this server at 2 a.m. in the morning? You know, it's these kind of events which are harder to spot, but there are plenty of um, solutions out there, EDR solutions, MDR solutions that can help with these type of things. Um, Then also... um, there's things like locking down the servers um, so that, you know, you're basically whitelisting, saying these are the only things that are allowed to run on this server, nothing else. Doing all of those kind of things uh, a good sort of general advice for all types of threats, not uh, just malless, malless, mal- malwareless <laughs> ransomware. I think I just made up a new word there. <laughs> anyway, yes, so it's, it's just good maintenance of your network, basically. Cool. All right. Thank you. Oh, one last thing. Almost forgot. I wanted to give a shout out um, to. Uh, well, I'm not going to give his full name out, but to a Howard B. Uh, so one of the victims um, when they were speaking to our support teams, they said, um, "Oh, I listened to the Naked Security podcast." Do you know Peter? And uh, the support engineer came and told me that. And I was like, I love hearing things like that because normally we're just sat in a box wondering if anyone's actually listening to us. Um, so, um, yeah, it's nice to hear that. So, Howard B. Um, hi. Thanks for listening, Howard B. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One listener. One listener. I haven't got slightly more. 
I know we've got slightly more. Um, cool. Thanks, Peter. So, Mark, you're going to tell us about Earn It. I am. Go on, and then. I'm going to attempt to... Uh, Start I'm, with a question? No. I'm going oh. to attempt to do something I've never done before. Okay. I'm going to attempt to talk about politicians wanting to break encryption in a measured and fair-minded way. Now, Mark, I don't know if you've ever spoken about anything in a measured and fair-minded way, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not a measured way. So politicians so, yeah, are interesting lot to correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, jumping in at the deep end there, Mark. <laughs> Good luck. Okay, go for it. Baby steps. <laughs> so this is all about the Earn It Act, which is the Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act. Could it be that they thought they wanted to go for the word for earn it and then they fitted that in with lots of words yeah, because I'm not sure we that. need them all I've wondered that in US regulation so they come up with a word and say let's think of a law it doesn't matter what it's about let's make something up and then we'll fit a law we'll, we'll regulate something just so it gets a cool name yeah say, if we say again Mark what is it it's the eliminating abusive and rampant neglect of interactive rampant. technologies act I mean, we don't yeah. need that word. What I like okay. is where it says earn it and then IT. And actually, IT means something a little bit different to everyone in the world, apparently, except the US legislature. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're going to tell us about earn it. In a measured way. <laughs> in a measured way. Go for it. I said I'm going to attempt to ah, talk about it. Weasel words. <laughs> so that's what it stands for, but what does it actually mean? Mm. Okay, well, it's a bipartisan effort. So this is... Uh, as as you'll have guessed from the fact that it's got a fancy name, this is a pr- law, proposed law, that's making its way through uh, the US Senate at the moment. And it's a, a bipartisan bill. It's uh, being led by Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Richard Blumenthal. So Lindsey Graham is quite well known. He's a chairman, amongst other things, he's the chairman of the US Senate's Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. He's also the title sponsor of the Earn It Act. Now, he recently told the Judiciary Committee, uh, I'm trying to find a way to child-proof these systems, these systems being apps and websites like Facebook, uh, Google and Twitter and things like that. I'm trying to find a way to child-proof these systems and make sure that innovation continues and that the people in the business know what they need to do to earn liability protection when it comes to preventing sexual exploitation of children. So what does he mean, earn liability protection? Well, what he's talking about there is the liability protection that platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Google currently get from something called Section 230. Section 230 is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 that says no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And what that means is if you post something dreadful on my website, then you're responsible for it, not Mm. me. So similarly, if you put something awful on Facebook, you're responsible for it, not Facebook. Okay, and the it's a legal provision that was, uh, I think it was designed to kind of help the the internet in its or the web rather in its early phase uh, to kind of bootstrap itself without lots of um, lawsuits and onerous regulation. Well, and, doesn't and that I'm sure thing it, really sort of come from the old telecommunications regulations where to help the telephone company develop or, or the postal service, they had to be held uh, legally 
not to blame if somebody discussed the crime over the telephone or used, say, Royal Mail to send a letter to somebody saying, hey, let's let's connive for a crime. So that's a, a long has a long sort of legal history in the Anglophone world, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly the same idea. If you say something offensive on a phone call, it's not your phone provider's fault. Um, but I think that this was a this was uh, a version of that that was specifically written with the web in mind. Uh, and the question is, did it did it help things to to get going? And it probably did um, because it it made it quite clear where the liability sat, and it meant that companies like Google uh, didn't have to do lots and lots of policing of the people that use their systems. Um, and Graham's point is that that's got us so far and these companies have done extremely well off the back of that, but he wants now for them to earn that provision. He wants to see a bit of payback. Right, His so it's sort of like is- they have to be between somewhere between being a, a telco where they're not they're just providing the infrastructure and between being, say, a magazine publisher where you are responsible for what's in it. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's something like that. So the way that he described it, or the way that he described his problem with the current situation, is that um, while the technology flourished under this existing regulation, uh, and that technology has done a lot of good, it's also created what he's described as a dream come true for child predators. And I think it's it's hard to argue with that. It's, it's undoubtedly... Um, you know, there are lots and lots of walled gardens. Uh, there are places that exist now as a result of that explosion in technology that didn't exist previously um, where you can do things kind of behind closed doors that would have been difficult previously. Is that like dark web and tour and stuff? Yes. What you mean? Exactly. But um, I think also that there's an awful lot of stuff happening in just on on places like Facebook that are absolutely enormous, sort of unpoliceably large with you know two billion users and and goodness knows how many groups and things like that. There's there are lots and lots of places where you can go, um, where you can sort of create a speakeasy if you like. It's it's very easy for you to do that. Um, if it's passed, the bill will create a national commission on online child sexual exploitation prevention, which is supposed to develop best practices for the owners of these uh, platforms. Um, and the idea of those best practices is that they will kind of prevent or reduce the amount of child exploitation online. So does that mean they want the keys to the castle as well? Well, it might. Mm. It might. Because it's it's very unspecific in terms of how the problems are going to be solved. Um, But what it does say is that the best practices... uh, are going to have to be uh, approved by or vetoed by the Attorney General, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and the Chair of the Federal Trade Commission. So what happens is these best practices effectively become laws because companies like Facebook are going to want to abide by those best practices because if they don't, they're going to lose their Section 230 liability protection. And... If the Attorney General or the Secretary of the Homeland Security or the Chair of the FTC don't like those best practices, then they're going to veto them. And if they do like them, they're going to approve them. So 
they get to rubber stamp what they are. And two of the current occupants of those positions, the Attorney General and the Secretary of Homeland Security, have been part of the recent chorus in favour of some yeah. form of broken encryption. I say broken. I mean, what they're looking for a way to be able to unpick encryption uh, and without sort of, using the word backdoor somehow. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it sounds and with this three-way rubber stamping as though it might be quite complicated, might take quite a lot of effort to get some new regulation passed. But then presumably it would also, if it didn't work out and had terrible consequences, it might take an awful long time to get it unpicked. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, uh, this stuff, you know, uh, the, the previous incarnation of this law is dates from 1996. Um, so I don't, this stuff doesn't get updated that recent, that, that, um, that often anyway. It's a bit like Pearl. But anyway, it's, the, it's that, <laughs> it's the, there's nothing in the bill itself that says, uh, that, that challenges encryption, but there is this sort of general background noise and milieu that's happening on both sides of the Atlantic that, um, sort of senior law enforcement and intelligence people have been talking about the need for encryption uh, backdoors or, you know, the ability to to get around encryption for a number of years. That's They've been giving speeches and all the mood music uh, is making it very clear what they want. And it's that more than the specific, in, the specific content of this bill. Yeah. Uh, that has got people looking at this, I think, and saying, "Well, this is the, how they're going to do it. This is the, the this is the, the, the means." It's just the no, latest angle, be, isn't it? In terms again? Of, it's just the latest angle, isn't it? In terms of trying to find a way. You to, can interpret yeah. it that way. Now, I see when when I watch uh, Lindsey Graham talking about the fact that he wants to do something about child exploit child exploitation. I honestly don't doubt for a second that he's sincere in that. Mm. And, and with the other people involved too, because I, I think, you know, we would be blind if we said that there isn't a problem. We would, we'd be blind if we said that the technology hasn't created opportunities for uh, predators that didn't exist before. Um, and so I, I, as I, as I said, I want to be fair minded and I, I, I think that there is a problem there. And I think that these people are sincere in the fact that they want to deal with the problem, I think that they also have other reasons why they might want to challenge encryption as well. I think what's difficult is that they are not in a position to say how they would like those problems to be solved. Mm. Um, and so I, I think what they're trying to do is turn up the heat on companies like Facebook. As I think it was uh, Lindsey Graham said a few months ago, either you're going to find a way to do this or yeah. we're going to tell you what that way is. But I don't think they know what that, I don't think they know what the way is. So I think that they're just trying to turn up the heat and saying, yeah. you know, you've got to do something about this. You're very clever people. We're out invented of ideas. All these amazing systems. <laughs> this sounds like it would be really super complicated for services that aren't, quite as variegated as, say, the Facebooks of the world, but say, I'm thinking of something like the send.firefox.com service, which is, it's all about sharing files, and yeah. the file is encrypted with a random string in your browser, then uploaded, and it's saved there for 24 hours, and it, when the person downloads it, as soon as they try and download it, it gets deleted. And the theory is that then, because the key is generated in your browser, and you choose or don't choose to share it with someone else, 
Facebook actually can't retrieve that. Facebook, Firefox can't retrieve that data, even if it wanted to. So there's no regulation it could possibly comply with. And it sounds like for services like that, which obviously can be widely abused, but are terribly useful in minimizing the risk of data breaches by oversharing things by mistake and leaving them lying around for too long, it seems like it could put a real spanner in the works of services that actually work for the greater good of all already if you know you if they have to can, upload those keys do you think we can uh, do you think well that it's inevitable and that they're just they're, they'll find a way eventually or do you think that we can keep batting them away and technology companies can keep batting them I, away i think that they will eventually legislate a yeah. way for it to be done and then we will see what happens i think what we'll probably learn very quickly that criminals don't feel obliged to follow the law uh, and that they're happy to carry on using strong encryption, even if it's illegal. Yeah. Yes, it's like, don't use tool. Ah, good idea. <laughs> so I don't know what the answer to this is, because on the one hand, I have no issue with the idea that uh, if law enforcement get a search warrant to go and search some property, that they should be able to go and do that. And I don't think it necessarily makes a difference if that property is my house or my email inbox, if they've, if they've acquired a warrant in order to do that. If in order to do that, we have to create broken encryption, then I think we have an enormous problem. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be um, leaving your door open for the, anyone, any old police person to be poking exactly. around or anyone so else. It seems to me there's a, it's an unsquareable circle. Mm. Um, but what I wanted to call out as well was just what I think is a, a bit of hypocrisy. What I wanted to call out was just what I think is a bit of hypocrisy around this subject because it feels to me like it, it's one of those things. It, it's easy to get people to agree to the idea that you shouldn't have encryption that has backdoors in it but actually if you when you go online or uh when you look at these debates uh, that are happening in the u.s um it seems to me that lots of people already feel like the companies like google and facebook have some responsibility for the content that's posted on them mm. that everybody's kind of a supporter of these section 230 until it applies to their favorite issue. So what you've got at the moment, for example, is there are lots of uh, left-leaning people who look at companies like Twitter and Facebook, and they see companies that have a problem dealing with far-right content. Why don't these companies do more to deal with all the far-right content that's on there? And then meanwhile, you've got right-wing politicians who are lobbying these companies saying that you guys have got a problem with your far too trigger happy to take down conservative right-wing voices on your platforms. And each side perceives that they're the side that's being hard done to. And each side also sees a role for those companies in policing the content that's put on them in a way that sort of goes against the spirit of Section 230. So I feel like it's one of those things where lots of people have already moved to that point of thinking, actually, these companies do have to do a bit of policing of themselves, mm. but only for the issue I care about, not for that thing. It would be unreasonable if it was for that thing, but for this thing I care about, there should be something <laughs> like this. Yeah. Well, which would be worse, <laughs> uh, uh, backdoors and encryption or the government regularly putting out a bulletin that tells the Facebooks of the world, oh, this this week you have to censor that and this week you have to censor the other, um, or you know, we're heading to a world where both of those will happen. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's a cheery cheery note, note, yeah. Yeah, Sorry, I didn't mean that to come out so badly. I was, I was hoping that meant it would never happen because it's obviously that's obviously going into a dead end street. Um, But it didn't come out that way. Sorry about that, Anna. (laughs) Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, Mark, where can we find you on social media? Uh, You can find me at the moment. You can find me at Internet of Hens. I shall be avoiding. Uh, everything else on Twitter for the foreseeable for the foreseeable future. If you want to see how my mason bees are doing, then check out Internet of Hens. It's a misleading name now. It is. It's more Internet of Bees for the time being. <laughs> Peter, uh, I'm on Twitter um, for at Alt Shift Print Screen. Duck, I am at Duck Blog on Twitter and at P Ducklin on Instagram. I'm at Anna Brading on Twitter and we are, of course, at Naked Security. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review our podcast. It's great for us to show our bosses so we can keep making the show for you. Of course, Facebook Live will be slightly different from now on. We're trying to find a way that Duck can do a just live stream or we may even, uh, we've got Harry the intern investigating how we can do duo screening. So bear with us while we try and sort that out. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube and of course, nakedsecurity.sophos.com. So until next time, stay secure. Stay secure. Stay secure.